every entrepreneur has a story. Welcome to Happy Half Hour with an Entrepreneur, where each episode, your host, Brian Carney, will share a drink with a successful business owner and have them discuss their unique journey, gaining insight on what it takes to be an entrepreneur and different ways to get there. Brian isn't just a beer nerd. He's also the co-founder of River's Edge Advisors, a financial planning firm headquartered in Delaware, specializing in working with business owners. It's time to pour yourself a drink and enjoy a happy half hour with an entrepreneur. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Happy Half Hour with an Entrepreneur. I'm your host, Brian Carney. My guest today is Mitch Russo. Mitch sold his software business and became independently wealthy at the age of 42. Since then, he's worked in several fields and built a business that helps entrepreneurs achieve their version of success. Not only has he written two Amazon best-selling books, but he's teamed up and created businesses with Chet Holmes, Kevin Harrington, and Tony Robbins. Mitch, welcome to the program. Thanks, Brian. It's great to be here. I'm excited to talk to you. I got I got a lot of questions, and uh, yeah, I'm really excited to, to learn more about your business. So while we talk, I'm going to be trying a beer called "Beer to Drink When It's Cold Outside" by Westbrook Brewing Company uh, from Columbia, from uh, Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. So it is where I am in December. It's cold. I know you're in the nice tropical warm, but we'll we'll give this a shot and give it a review at the end. Sounds good. Okay, so. A lot to get to. Your background is pretty uh, expansive. So you have so many different branches to your business. Can you just sort of tell us a little bit about your overall business as it stands today? Yeah. So this, for me, this basically uh, started when I sold my software company. So I'm skipping ahead a little bit, but uh, I, I, I started a software company in my 20s. I grew it throughout my 30s and into my, and just as I hit 40, uh, we received an offer to sell the company and, and, uh, and I did, and we sold the company, which again, financially was very rewarding, Sure, but it's really there that in many ways, my, my, I would say my career started, mm -hmm. uh, because the growth that I had in building that software company, the, the emotional and the mental and lessons and experience and wisdom growth from building that software company enabled me to help others in many ways that I had not even realized at the time. Yeah. So from there, that's when I realized, and I, it wasn't like I came up with the idea. People came over to me and said, Hey, Mitch, that's pretty cool. What you just did. Sure. Can, can you help us do that too? That's, that's incredible. So first of all, I'm a little depressed because I just turned 42 a couple of weeks ago and I'm not yet uh, getting offers for to sell my company, but we'll, we'll deal with that at another time. So I'm interested in the emotions behind selling a business because most entrepreneurs don't go into starting a company with the, the, with the main goal of selling it. So you get, a, you get an offer and you sell your business. And then I sort of feel like there's this part of an entrepreneur's life where they go, all right, I sold my business. Now what? And 42 is a pretty young age to have that now what experience. So did you find that to be the case for you? Completely. In fact, I spent years wallowing in now what? Really? Yeah. I mean, it wasn't so clear to me. You know, all of my life, you know, you, it's funny that you said it the way you did. I actually started a software company for the purpose of creating financial freedom. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. I didn't like have this passion to help lawyers with their billing. <laughs> I can't even, I don't even like most lawyers. So, Fair point. Yeah. So, uh, you know, 
it, it's an odd feeling because, you know, I started out with the idea if I could build a company and grow it and then maybe create an asset and sell it, I could, I could have financial freedom. But in the process, everything changed. Mm-hmm. Now, all of a sudden, I realized that I had a bigger purpose. I realized that it wasn't really about making money, at least I believed for me anyway, right. that that was going to happen. That was not, if it doesn't happen this time, it'll happen next time. Um, but I knew that with persistence and with focus, I could build something of value and sell it or accumulate enough money through activity such as selling or sales or trading or, or any of these things um, and achieve financial independence. But what ended up happening was I started to really enjoy working with others and developing others. Right. So all of a sudden now I went from having zero employees. It was just me and my partner. Uh, and then, you know, seven years later, I had a hundred employees. Wow. And um, all of a sudden now I realized what, I mean, uh, not, not all of a sudden at a hundred employees, but at about 15 employees, sure. I started realizing my shortcomings. Yep. Um, I was a terrible manager. I had, I was unable to delegate properly uh, and didn't understand the, the, the true cycle of communication. So uh, I became overbearing and annoying to most people. I'm annoying anyway. But <laughs> on top of that, this made it even you became more annoying. I got it. More yeah. annoying. Right. <laughs> right. And so I realized that I actually had to figure out how to educate myself on things like delegation, on management, on structure. And there were no such things at that time called business coaches. Sure. Yeah. So So I just had to figure it out. Yeah, that's actually, I find fascinating. And I do feel like one of the things that many entrepreneurs really struggle with is they're really good at, you know, sort of doing their job and doing their work. And then all of a sudden their business starts to grow and now they're wearing a bunch of, a bunch of different hats. You know, I'm also a terrible manager um, and I think it's a very difficult thing to do. So how are you able to help uh, your clients really figure out how to work through the difficulty and the, and the strategy behind wearing all these different hats? Well, it always starts in the same place. All my conversations with new clients start in the same place. And we usually spend about 30 minutes uncovering what they truly want more mm-hmm. than anything else. And, and once and I have a process, which I've developed over several decades that gets me there very quickly. And what ends up happening at that point is I start to realize that, and in some cases, when I begin the process, my new client doesn't even realize what they really want. Right. And then by 20, 30, 40 minutes later, not only are they realizing it, I've had several people break down and cry for the first time. They now finally see what their purpose is. Wow. Then once we understand that and we align what they have as abilities, skills, talents, and, uh, and uniqueness to their true purpose, and then we build a business model to support that. Now, some people already have businesses. That's right. fine. We don't, we're not going to tell them, no, nope, nope, got to close that business and start another one. We don't, <laughs> that was not good advice. If you hear that from your coach, hang right. up quickly. <laughs> uh, no, usually what it amounts to is we're going to realign how you interact with that business. For some people, it it's better if they back out of the business and exit without exiting as 
my friend Jason Duncan says, yeah, uh, and and become a silent partner and let people who really love and thrive on helping and managing others do that. And for some, it's you know what, go deeper into the area that really got you into this business. And in one case, you know, I had a a founder who was an amazingly brilliant technologist, and he hated being president of the company. Hmm. But he had to do, I and mean, he had no choice. That was at least he thought he had no choice. Yeah. And then, and so by the time we were done together, we had gotten him to a point where he was really enjoying life again and really enjoying his business. And his business was finally growing again for the first time. Wow. You know, I, I find this fascinating because, you know, we, we alluded to it a little bit earlier, but a lot of times these entrepreneurs and these business owners, it ends up not really being about the money anymore. You know, a lot of the times they have really high incomes and they're doing things that they want, but they're still miserable because they're kind of, they feel a little bit trapped by their business. I feel like, you know, when you're able to take a client and work, walk them through that breakthrough to, to have them enjoy their job, that has to be extremely rewarding for you. It is. It's my, it's one of my favorite things to do So the, the thing that I love doing, that's the first highest, most fun thing I do, but it only takes a short period of time. The second part of that is building the business model. Yeah, That's yeah. where I I pull all of my life experience and creativity in and create that model that I believe, and I think at the time my client certainly believes that they now can expand rapidly from where they were because they see things differently now and have aligned more closely with their true passion. Yeah. So when you say you know you help them build a model, is that sort of like inst- helping them install efficient processes? that now align with what they're, where they're trying to go with their new sort of found knowledge. Is that what you mean? That's certainly part of it. Part of it is understanding who their true clients are, customers are, what their real market is Mm -hmm. and, and how to approach that market in unique ways. Uh, A lot of people are stuck. I mean, some, I remember this happened many times. I've, I, I take on a client, the guy's like has a $50 million business. He's doing really well. And, and, um, you know, he said to me in the first meeting, in the first five minutes of our meeting, he goes, yeah, so-and-so recommended I speak to you, but I got to tell you, I, I don't think I'm going to need you or even want to hire you because you're not going to be able to teach me anything about my business because I've been immersed in it for 35 years. Yeah. And I said, sure, fair enough. I get it. Uh, I said, and I'll, I'll tell you what, you know, let's, let's give it a try. Let's see what happens. And um, um, maybe I'll be wrong. And this might be the first time ever, but Almost every time, in fact, every time I show any client pathways they never saw before, marketing opportunities, sales channels they never saw before, uh, expansion capability, multiple revenue stream possibilities they just never saw before. Right. So it's all about sort of changing that that frame of view or that point of view. Here's the biggest, biggest block to success. Success. Hmm. Once you're successful at something, you no longer are not, I shouldn't say it blanketly this way, but many people are no longer open to being more successful in a different way. Interesting. That's very, that does make sense. I'll give Um, you an example. Yeah. So I'm sitting next to this man. He uh, sold his company for $250 million and we're in an angel investment meeting. Mm -hmm. He's a, few years older than me. Um, I was just out of, of time slips and I'm sitting there listening to these brilliant young 
kids, you know, basically they're 26 years old and they, they have this brilliant idea. They're founding this new thing. Uh, and the guy sitting next to me, presentation after presentation, he and I are chit-chatting back and forth. And his, his comment is, that's stupid. Uh, that'll never work. Oh, that's dumb. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, of course it is to him because right. he just made $250 million uh, on setting up some obscure link between databases or some crap like that. Right. And I mean, that's in his mind that, well, listen, if you want to be rich, just set up an obscure link between databases. <laughs> What's the problem? Don't you get that? You know? Yeah. So yeah. the biggest barrier to success is your past success. That, that actually is, um, you know, that's come up a couple of times on the podcast, but in a much different way that I do feel like there's a certain point where you get, you get successful and you go, okay, well, I'm, I'm successful compared to other people. And you get into to sort of that comparison game. I'm not as successful as this person, but I'm, I'm more successful than these people. And you do get sort of complacent at, at some point. Um, you know, uh, it is a huge thing to be able to recognize that and be willing to sort of danger venture down that dangerous road and, and sort of really expand on that. So true. And, and, you know, the biggest problem you, you brought it up or you alluded to it is that, you know, it's sort of like when you came on the show today, you said, Oh, uh, I'm going to be, uh, how old are you now? 42. I turned 42, I'm be 42 and I'm not independently wealthy. And, and right then and there, I realized that you're not alone. A lot of people would say that, but you don't know what's going on in my mind. Sure. I'll give you an example. When I sold Timesups Corporation, I just got my first multi-million dollar check from the buyout and I'm at a party uh, with a bunch of other people. I was invited by the CEO of the company that bought us. And in this party, I, you know, I'm just wandering around holding my beer and chatting with folks. And one guy is saying, you know, I just can't decide whether it's going to be the G4 or the G5. The G5 has more seats, has a little <laughs> bit more fuel capacity. And uh, he goes, yeah, because, you know, it's so hard getting to Aspen from Dallas. I got to have my own jet. I'm thinking to myself, man, I'm a loser. <laughs> You're I'm right. I'm such a loser. I don't even have a G2. <laughs> I, don't have a, I don't even have a negative G. I don't have a, I don't even have an O. Forget about, you know, it's just like, it's, it's basically once you start comparing yourself to others, it's a losing game. So Instead, true. my answer is, where were you last year at this time, Brian? Where were, you know, whoever you're talking to, where were you last year? Yep. If you're listening to us speak right now, are you in a better place now than you were last year? That's the only comparison that counts. It's a great point. You're in a game against yourself, not against anyone else. And exactly. I, yeah, that, that, you, but you see it, I'm sure, all the time with your with your clients that ego can really derail uh, people. I know, and I had a guy, and this 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 not a not a not a woman, a man. I had a guy who said, "Yeah, I'm not Jeff Bezos." I, I and I said, "Yeah, except there's only one person who is." So right. why would you compare yourself? Yeah, I know, but but I mean, we started out in the same place. In fact, we went to the same school a couple of years apart. And I, I had to like immediately stop and say, look, this isn't going to work. Right. Yeah. You, because it, because all it's going to do is make you feel bad no matter what you do. Yeah. How about we reset this now before we even begin working together? Yep. And, um, and in fact, that's part of what my proprietary tool set's about. Yeah. When I, when I built this new platform for coaches called Client Folio, 
one of the most important things that we do as a coach is we help people grow in different areas of their life. And the only way to know that they're growing is to keep track of their growth. It's true. Well, so there is no coaching platform that I've discovered that does that, at least the way I needed to do it. So I built my own because I, we build literally in our coaching platform, we show graphs to our clients every week of their, of their progress through this process of growing a company. So you built, obviously background in software helps, but so now for client folio, if I'm a coach, I buy your, your system and I'm actually able to use your system to help me be, do a better job uh, of coaching my clients. Is that sort of how it works? That's sort of how it works. And when you say buy, you subscribe. Gotcha. And, and coaching software can be very expensive. When I started looking at different products, you know, I was okay. I had a very active, I do have an active practice. I was okay with spending two, $300 a month for software. I mean, look, Infusionsoft and uh, even ClickFunnels at the, you know, with their full model cost sure. about that. But I, I, I didn't feel like it was fair to charge that much, particularly to beginning coaches. Mm -hmm. So I decided that I was going to put a cap on what I charge for client folio. And it's only right now, it's only $19 and 97 cents a month. Oh, wow. And, and the reason I did that is because I want to grow with my clients. Yeah. So as they get better, as they accelerate their processes, as they use my tool set to make more money and to help their own clients accelerate more rapidly, then they will add more coaches. And when they add a coach, they pay another $19.97 a month. That's great. I'm interested in how your books fit into to all of this. Um, you know, I definitely want to talk. So uh, let's talk about your first book. So in 2015, you're running a, a $25 million business out of a spare bedroom in your house. Is that, is that right? Well, let me correct the year. It's actually, okay. uh, it was 2009 through 2012. Okay. And when Chet passed away, I exited the organization. So I started 2013 with no list, no customers, no concept of who I was going to be again. I had to reinvent myself all over again. Wow. And, uh, you know, what am I supposed to do here? Am I going to get a job? I mean, I mean, look, I have money. I could hang out. Right. But I realized long ago that, you know, once you achieve the goal of financial freedom, that's no longer exciting. Sure. I mean, sure. You can make more money, but I mean, ultimately it's not, it's just not that exciting anymore. Yep. So I needed it a, a different way. And it took me some time to figure it out. So the first thing I did is I called friends. I called people in my world that I knew and said, Hey, what do you think I should do? So hmm. do you know who Jay Abraham is? I do not. So Jay Abraham is a business consultant, the master business consultant, several levels above me by maybe decades or, or eons above me and his abilities. But I called him up and I said, Jay, what do I do? And uh, he said, Mitch, I don't know what you should do. I, I, don't, I don't know anybody who needs what you do, but, but I do know that you cannot die on this planet without sharing your knowledge. Mm. The world needs what you know. Yeah. I said, well, okay, well, that's pretty cool, I guess. Now, <laughs> what does that mean? What do like, I do with that? Yeah. Yeah. Like, is that like, do I hold a party? I mean, what, what do I do? <laughs> and he said, I don't know. It just, but you just, you just have to share it somehow. I said, okay. So I started making notes and I started writing and I started compiling some of the th processes that I had figured out 
going from 3 million to 30 million with Tony and Chet. Yeah. And that became the book called The Invisible Organization. Uh, it's great. So uh, talk a little bit about that book and, and it, you know, being able to have a business that operates virtually two and a half years ago kind of seemed like, eh, maybe that'll work. Maybe it won't. And now post pandemic, well, I guess we're still technically in the pandemic, but now everyone was sort of forced for at least a year plus to, to, mm -hmm. to operate virtually. It right. seems like you were ahead of your time. Yeah, I was, but don't forget um, what evolved between the time that book was published and today or even two years ago, are the tools. Mm -hmm. So a lot of what I had to cobble together to build and run business breakthroughs, um, those tools now exist and didn't before. So, right. I mean, that's part of it. The other thing is, is that it became much more um, a common for people to be working from home. Yes. You know, I, used, I used to tell, I tell the story in the book uh, about calling for a reservation at a major airline. And um, I'm talking to this very nice young woman who's helping me get my flight set up. And I say to her casually, so uh, how do you like working from home? And, and she's, she says, what? I said, well, you, you, you're, you work from home, don't you? She goes, well, actually, yeah, I, I, I do. I said, well, in fact, all of you guys do. She goes, well, yeah, yeah, yeah we do. Yeah. So, I mean, airlines got this idea a while ago, instead of having a big building with a big parking lot and a big insurance policy on a big piece of real estate with Lots thousands of kilowatts running it every day. Sure. Why don't we just send people home with a modem and a, or in this case, a VPN and a, and a laptop computer and a headset, and they could do their job from their kitchen and they'd be happy and we'd be happy. Yep. Well, all I did was take that and, and take it to the next level. I, so the book is about three things. It's, it's about the mindset of the CEO that it takes to run a virtual corporation. Mm -hmm. It's about the power you have once virtual that you didn't have before. The power in marketing, the power in selling, the power in creating. Yeah. And the third part, which is now the obsolete part, is the technology required to do it. Yeah. You're right. That is the obsolete part. Now, I'd be interested in your opinion on <clears throat> in our in our business. We had an incredible culture heading into the pandemic, and I do think the work from home environment sort of killed our culture. How? What advice would you have given to us to say, "Hey, this is what you need to do to preserve that culture"? Okay, so this is a great question, and I again, it's it's super important. Uh, and here's the simplest answer I can give you. If you're the CEO mm -hmm. and, and you send your entire team home because of a pandemic, then it's now your responsibility to over communicate. Mm. So the reason that culture wanes in, in remote uh, work is because the bonds become broken. Yes. And you must set up chat rooms for your people, for your teams, you must communicate on a daily basis with a short video, at least. You must hold group calls with the teams as the leader, <coughs> excuse me, and you must share your optimism at all times and your culture will thrive under, and I'm giving you the simplistic sure. 30 second answer. But the whole idea here, it really comes down to 
the way, look, we communicate with body language. We communicate with physical presence. Mm-hmm. We communicate with the way we dress and the way we care for ourselves. When we show up at a company and I mean, I had an employee who wore the same clothes every single day. I mean, it wasn't like they were dirty. He had five sets of the same clothes. He wore the same thing every day. Steve Jobs. Well, that, yeah. Well, like Steve, right? And that became <laughs> part of his personality and that, that's fine. Yeah. But we, that's gone now. Mm-hmm. You know, we had another person who used to sing and play their guitar in the break room. Well, that's gone too. Yeah. We had a, a CEO when I worked for a company out of Dallas, uh, we had a CEO who basically had virtually no communication, even when it wasn't virtual. Yep. And now, of course, they go virtual and they start to fall apart. Well, this yeah. is back a couple of years. And the reason is, is because we don't, we, we, we've, rem- we've chopped all of those different communication channels, some of them very subtle, right. down to almost only one. Yep. You know, it, it is interesting that, you know, a, a, an organization can be held together, their culture can be held together by nothing other than physical presence. And when you take that away and you have to figure out the, a different way to do it, you know, you know, bad things can happen if you're not prepared for it. Right. Well, you know, in a, a very uh, f- famous book um, uh, that talked about how successful managers manage their company, they had a term called MBWA. And that stands for management by walking around. <laughs> and I, I learned that from Tom Peters, who spoke from stage many years ago. He wrote the book In Search for Excellence. And so when I learned that, I would get up out of my chair three times a day. Yep. And I had, a, I had a, about a 40,000 square foot facility that I was running. And I would walk around three times a day, walk around. Yeah. I'd make fun of the guy who had a foot pedal under his under his table that he would flip when I walked by because he was playing a video game before I showed up. And right. now it looked like a spreadsheet on the screen. <laughs> and I caught him a hundred times. I just made a joke of it, uh, but he did his job. So I didn't mind. And right. I, it, but the, the whole point is though, is that I got to know people by walking around. Yes. I got to find out who they were. I let them see more of what I was about. Yep. And, and I believe that because I did that when I, I mean, look, when I sold the company, it was a surprise to many people in the organization, mm-hmm. but most of them, not all, but most of them were happy for me. Sure. Yeah. Well, that, that's built. That's a good culture, you know, yeah. where they're happy for you. So yeah. you take the first book. How does the second book come about, Power Tribes? Well, you know, once I built Time Slips and after I did that and I was done with that, I, then I did all this other stuff. And it wasn't until after I left business breakthroughs that someone came to me and said, Hey, I I read that blog post you wrote about certification. Do you think you could do that for us? And I said, Oh, sure. Yeah, I could absolutely do that. Um, And so I, uh, I started working with this guy and uh, (laughs) turns out that it was like, it, it was, it came back to me so instantly. And on top of that, in helping him, I had developed several core processes for helping others as well. And um, within 10 weeks, uh, working together, he had created a, a six-figure payday out of, out of zero, out of nothing. Wow. And he was so excited about it. Um, and I showed him how we could do that every quarter and then even more. And then, of course, other people said, well, I saw what you just did for Josh. Can you do that for us too? 
and on and on and on until finally I said, you know, I should, I should probably write a book about this. Right. And, and, you know, my first fear was, oh my God, uh, this is like my sort of secret sauce. If I write this book, yes, I give all this secret sauce away. Uh, I'm not I, valuable anymore. I'm not valuable anymore. Right. Yeah. But, but I, that was an impulse thought. I had already known the answer to that. The answer is, is that information alone is valuable, but it's not as valuable as implementation. Mm. And information without implementation equals zero. Yes. That's the equation. So most people will not, and in some cases cannot implement just from reading a book. And that to me has turned my book Power Tribes into one of the greatest selling tools I ever created. So when you, when you say certification, explain a little bit about what you mean about that, how that can sort of launch a business. Well, well, what my brand of certification is called building a power tribe. Uh-huh. Okay. So, so when you hear some coach, like a famous coach, like John Maxwell mm-hmm. talk about his coaching division and how he has, you know, 500, I don't know how many he has certified coaches. What someone like John Maxwell has done is he created a test and he sold that test and that person passed the test and they then got the title of certified coach and they got a very, very beautiful certificate that they could hang right behind them as they speak on the phone. Yep. And that's it. Mm -hmm. Maybe they get a Facebook group to say hi to each other. Yeah. To me, that's not a business model. Mm -hmm. And the reason it's not a business model is because the person is a coach because they love coaching. Right. They probably don't love marketing and sales, and they probably don't like building funnels or, or systems. They probably don't want to build new stuff that they don't think they need. That's a different business. Yeah. And that's not why they're there. So if you go back and you ask those certified coaches, how much money has that certification made for them? Only a few will tell you it's made the money. So that is not what I do. Mm-hmm. I want to be clear. Yes. Uh, yeah. First of all, that's not a recurring revenue model. The only thing I work on with my clients is recurring revenue. Great, so, great point. Yep. So now when I build a, a power tribe, we start out by saying, well, look, every year your clients are going to have to recertify. Okay, great. Well, now how, how much do we charge for certification? Well, what we then do is I use a, a system of tools that I've developed to pretty much figure out to the dollar what the right amount would be to charge. And usually, depending on the process, it's between five and $28,000 a year. Mm. Because again, what we're looking for is that if someone purchases a certification system, they must generate between three and 10x ROI, or they won't do it again next year. That makes sense. And if they won't do it again next year, then we failed. Yeah, it's a trend. Then it becomes a transaction one-time business, which is not good. Right. Yeah. But then we go further than that. Uh-huh. We said, well, well, what else can we set up as a separate recurring revenue system? Mm-hmm. So now what we then do is we put marketing tools in place and we make sure that every year when they say, yes, I want to recertify, they got that 10X on certification because of the vast system of tools that my clients provide to their certified partners that make the money in advance. So I'll give you an example. Whenever I work with somebody, I say, look, you just can't sell them a test like, like so many other people do. 
we need lead flow. Yeah. So that means you need a CRM system dedicated just to your certified consultants or your certified coaches. And we need to feed that lead flow actively every week, every month with fresh leads. Mm-hmm. How are we going to do that? And usually the response is, well, heck, Mitch, I don't even have enough leads for my own business. How right. can I do that? And I said, well, look, let's take a look at the picture here. We're charging $20,000 for certification. Our first class will probably be no less than 10 people, likely 20. Yeah. So we just generated $200,000, $400,000 here. Do you think we could peel off 15% of that and break that up and spend it on our own certified consultants for lead gen? Oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Let's do that. Yeah. So the other thing that ends up happening is that when a company becomes has a new certification program, I also ask another very simple question. I said, okay, how many customers do you have? Okay, and they'll tell me a number. And I said, well, okay, um, let's say they told me a 1,000 customers, a 1,000 clients. I said, well, I'm going to make a guess here. I'm going to guess that you actually in your database have between 15 and 25,000 leads that right. never converted. Yep. And they say, yeah, yeah, you're, you're right. I said, well, how about if we take those leads and we use them to basically uh, jumpstart our certification system and we turn those leads into leads for our certified coaches to go off and come back to those same clients who didn't buy before and say, yeah, sure, we're here to sell you the same thing again, but now you're going to get us instead. Mm. So instead of just buying the product, you're now going to get a coach. Right. Okay. And that usually ends up converting five to 10% of those leads right away. That's great. So now the company is making more money from selling their products. The certified coaches are now making money by helping people and selling their coaching services through the company. And on top of that, we now have much more money to spend for marketing. And that's how we jumpstart a typical program. Well, that's a a legitimate process that I'm sure not many coaches actually have in place to be able to lean on. That's right. Yeah. That, 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 you're, you're absolutely right. And that's why I said before, you know, most coaches are good at coaching, but they're probably not good at selling. And, and that's kind of really where we shine when we build programs that are designed to help create marketplaces for our certified coaches. Yeah. That's incredible. So another area that you you do, which I'm I'm fascinated by, is you help people with radio ads. Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> so you know, given the state of radio, how how's that arm of your business, and how how's that over done over the over the past few years, and how do you do it? <clears throat> well, let me give you some background there. I am. Um... When, um, when we were building Business Breakthroughs International, um, Chet uh, trained me on how to buy media mm-hmm. uh, and how to basically uh, utilize radio. And we were at that time spending, I think it was maybe $15,000 a month on radio. Uh, and so after he wouldn't turn that over to me for months until he was certain that I was fully trained on how to do that. Yeah. And, um, and then what I started to do once I took it over is I started to optimize that. And then, you know, I would get comments from Tony and Chet where they would say things to me like Mitch radio got to pay for itself. And I would argue, I said, well, you know, you got to understand that we're only, you know, when we run a radio ad, we're only selling something for $200 or less uh, it's the follow-on 
business that really pays for it. And they said, well, your goal should be to make radio self-liquidating in the first sale. Mm. And I said, I could do that. Okay. And I decided at that point that I was going to drill down and figure out what it takes to make radio more productive and basically self-liquidating in some cases profitable, even on an entry-level product. Wow. So we're at a point where we're getting over 6,000 phone calls a month coming into our call center. And we had a closing rate of 10%. Good Lord. And that was a lot of people who weren't even qualified. If we took out the non-qualified people, we were closing at a 19% rate on qualified callers. Incredible. Generated from a radio ad call-in. You got it. Those numbers one, are insane. One call closed, 14-minute script, signed. And now we bring them into a webinar. Uh, uh, we teach them something amazing. We take them through one of our processes. And in the webinar, we upsell them a $4,000 product. And now that webinar generates between thirty dollars and $40,000 Every time we run it, we're running 300 of them a month. Holy crap. <laughs> That's a good math problem there. Yeah, exactly. I, I love it. Well, yeah. I, let me back up a little bit. Uh, tell me a little bit of how you, how do you even get involved with Tony Robbins and Chet Holmes? Like, how does that even come about? Well, when I was building Time Slips Corporation, I had this pesky sales guy who wouldn't leave me alone, who's constantly trying to sell me his ads. That was Chet Holmes. Uh -huh. So. So Chet was working for a California lawyer at the time. And, um, and, you know, he, if you've ever read his book, The Ultimate Sales Machine, which I highly recommend, it's an amazing book. He talks about this thing that he coined. It's called the Dream 100. And the Dream 100 is your 100 top prospects that if you could close even 20 of them, it would change your life. Mm -hmm. So I was one of his Dream 100. I was in that list. That's cool. And he worked really hard to try and close me. <laughs> I was really hard to close. Yeah. But in the process, we became really good friends. And uh, he did close me. And I, in fact, ended up becoming very loyal subscriber or, or advertiser in that publication because it made us so much money. Yeah. And uh, that's how, I, ultimately, that's how years later, after I sold the company and then hired Chet to help me run the sales team at Sage and then later... Uh, Chet called and asked for some help building his sales force. I got involved. Next thing I know, I'm running his company. And now he's telling me about an upcoming call or meeting with Tony Robbins. Wow. And I said, uh, great. Let me know how that goes. So he has that meeting with Tony Robbins. And um, next thing I know, he says, well, Tony wants you in the business. So the three of us started Business Breakthroughs International. Incredible. So- yeah. And so the three of us were, were equity partners in this new joint venture. And we took it from a base of basically zero to nearly 30 million in revenue by the time I left. And by the time that had Chet had passed, and wow. it was time for me to go. Holy crap. That's amazing. I, I have a, one of my favorite quotes is a Tony Robbins quote. And I actually have it sitting on my shelf over there. And I sort of pound my hand on the table at my office with this. And it's, it's complexity is the enemy of execution. And I feel like we live in a world now where, where simplicity is a lost art form. Yep. How do you, how are you able to sort of dig into your clients and really sort of hammer that home for them? Well, I, I like 80, 20 a lot. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so I have a different way of saying what you just said. Yeah. I would say that perfection is the price of bankruptcy. Oh. And, and so basically, if you want to be perfect, then you keep on trying to be perfect and you'll be trying to be perfect until you go bankrupt. Unfortunately, love that. But, so for me, in my 80-20 world, I want to get 80% of the benefits for 20% of the work or sell 80% of my products to, to the highest paid products to the 20% of my customers. Yeah. And, and I, if I stay focused on that, everything makes more sense. Yep. That, I mean, that's a great view. That's that, that's a, that's a real math problem that 80, 20, you know, I I've sat down and done that before. And that math is shockingly accurate how that, that ends up oh, shaking oh, out. Ab- absolutely. And it's called the Pareto principle, by the way. Yeah. And, uh, uh, that simple idea, um, basically there you go. Yeah. The book right here. Richard Koch, <laughs> right. But now, you know, so, so again, I mean, by understanding 80-20, then you also understand that 80-20 um, is fractal. Yeah. And what I mean by fractal, because if you read Richard Koch's book, it means that there's also 80-20 of the 80-20. Mm-hmm. And then there's 80-20 of the 80-20 of the 80-20. Yeah. So that's why when you walk into a Starbucks, because they do understand this, you will see, a, in most cases, a $2,500 espresso machine in the store. Why? Because... of any group will spend more than you're charging. And Mm -hmm. then 20% of the 20% will spend even more. And so as you take this down two or three levels, you realize someone come in for a cup of coffee, might look over at a $2,500 machine and go, that's cool. I'll take that. Yeah. Right. It's the same in every business. Yep. So just, I wanted to ask one final question since we're running out of time here. Your career has been everywhere. How many jobs in total have you had in your lifetime or how many different careers, I guess? Well, if you count being the lead guitar player of the rock band called Absolutely Free. Yeah. Then that (laughs) number would go to probably. I'm going to say eight. Wow. That's great. One follow up question. Why did you name your rock band Absolutely Free? Well. That's an excellent question. I was a very big fan of Frank Zappa. Okay. And I used to travel by subway to New York City to try and catch a glimpse of him outside the Cafe Wa in Greenwich Village where he played. Cool. And uh, one, and his very first album that I that I that I think he ever released was called Absolutely Free. Oh wow. So I and when it came time for me to form my own band. I said, you know what? Let's call it, in honor of Frank, absolutely free. Oh, that's great. That's awesome. My father-in-law always had a joke that he wanted to name his band Free Beer. So when they put it on the marquee, it would say Free Beer Tonight. And everyone would come in and see it. So anyway, Mitch, this was great. I really enjoyed talking to you. It it was uh, Your background is phenomenal. And I I, I think there's so many good nuggets in this. So I I really appreciate your time. Um, if you'd like to go to learn a little bit more about Mitch, go to his website at MitchRusso360.com and you can buy his book, Power Tribes and the Invisible Organization, anywhere books are sold. Um, if you'd like to connect with me, 
on the untapped app where I rate all these beers. My username is brcarney7. To learn more about how my firm helps business owners with their financial planning, visit riversedgeadvisors.com. And to hear past episodes of the podcast, go to happy-half-hour.com. All right. One final piece of business, beer to drink when it's cold outside, Westbrook Brewing. I'm going to give this a four out of five. I definitely would drink it again. Very good beer, especially again, like I said, it's getting cold up here. So Mitch, thanks again so much. Um, I really appreciate it. And make sure you go to, to, to check uh, Mitch out everywhere I mentioned. Mitch, cheers to you. Thank you, Brian. I'm a uh, Sam Adams guy. Just want to let you know. Oh, so we can side note. Dogfish Head here in Delaware was recently purchased by Sam Adams. So, you know, that's a, that's a power couple if there ever was one in the beer industry. I agree. I agree. That's <laughs> good, good to hear. All right. Thanks, Mitch. Take care and uh, cheers. Cheers. Thank you for listening to Happy Half Hour with an Entrepreneur, sponsored by Rivers Edge Advisors. For more information on how Rivers Edge Advisors can help you, visit their website at riversedgeadvisors.com. If you'd like to connect with Brian Carney, for business advice, or just to share beer, follow him on Instagram at riversedgeadvisors underscore LLC.